If you're going to spend a lot of time researching and telling the story of a particular place, it seems only natural that you should go there and actually see it with your own eyes. Well, as much as I wish this episode was about my trip to France and Le Chambon, I have to confess, I didn't have the budget for it. Besides, this series isn't about Le Chambon today, it's about Le Chambon in the 1940s. So, frankly, I don't need a plane ticket so much as I need a time machine. Luckily, I found the next best thing, a museum exhibit in Queens. We wanted to transport the gallery goer to Le Chambon and feel the significance of this effort. That's Carrie Lane, curator in residence of the Kupferberg Holocaust Center at Queensboro Community College in New York City. And this is him walking me through their Conspiracy of Goodness exhibit shortly after it opened in the fall of 2017. We were able to use multimedia to do this, so recordings of sermons from Pastor Truck May, images of the people who were rescued in Le Chambon, uh, videos of survivors of Le Chambon, including Hane Liebman and Renee Kahn Silver, uh, who are affiliated with our Holocaust Center. It's not exactly a coincidence that there's a Holocaust Center in Queens or that Max, Hannah, and Renee live nearby. Many survivors, including my wife's grandparents, ended up settling in Queens, which still remains a haven for immigrants. This is one of the most diverse colleges in the United States. The students are largely immigrants, and uh, each of them have their own tangible and like real experience with immigration, and I believe 40% live below the poverty line as well. So the, these students know adversity, they know difficulty, and I think that's why this exhibit really resonates which is something that brings Max, Hannah, and Renee a lot of satisfaction. They're very heartened by the fact that students are interested in this, and they're learning from this story, especially now in their political environment. I, of course, was interested in what they thought of the nonviolence angle. Were they surprised? Were they in disbelief? Did they think it was something that couldn't work today? It exposes them to alternative ways to resist. And I don't think for one second that they think that uh, passive resistance is weak. I think they see nothing but strength. It wasn't hard to believe what Carrie was telling me. The exhibit really was immensely impressive. It flowed down a long 50-foot hallway and had production values that belied its community college environment. I truly felt transported to this place I had been imagining for so long. We introduce our uh, gallery goers to the Huguenots' own experience with uh, oppression and uh, persecution from French Catholics, and we sort of form a sort of thematic basis for this. The exhibit is, of course, also quick to introduce you to André Trocmé. We put an excerpt from the Weapons of the Spirits speech from 1940. Uh, the duty of Christians is to resist the violence directed at our consciences with the weapons of the spirit. And it's interesting to have the word Christian and Christ in a Holocaust center, but it was so important for us to sort of put it in a prominent place and how serious these townspeople were about uh, passive resistance. Aside from Andre, there are many other familiar figures. So this is Peter Feigl, and these are his portraits. We call this the Feigl Wall. It's a collage of headshots, mainly of refugees that were taken during the war by the document forgers in Le Chambon. Children would often collect and trade the extras, which is how Peter ended up with so many. And amazingly, he held on to them all these years. Here's one example of, uh, of an actual Oscar Ostrowski fake ID. Oscar, as you'll recall from last episode, was the primary document forger. And it's thanks to his efforts that we know somewhere around 5,000 refugees were sheltered on the plateau, around 3,500 of which were Jewish. 
And as you can see, it looks like they're trying to duplicate the same French uh, citizenship card. Hannah Liebman gave some of her mementos to the exhibit as well. We have her fake identity card, her escape route into Switzerland, and the actual satchel that she brought from her home when there were roundups 78 years ago. Not only did this satchel survive deportation to France, it survived Gers' internment camp and her escape to Switzerland. It was just amazing to see these items and the people they belonged to treated with such reverence, given how surprisingly little known the story remains. There's something about that plateau that's sort of hidden away, I think. So too is this story hidden away, but I think that it's coming to light a little bit more now. Of course, the only reason a story can come to light 75 years after the fact is if people preserve it and carry its ideas forward. And that's what we're going to explore in this episode. How the story was kept alive in the years after the war. How it has evolved over the decades and its effect on those closest to it. This is the story of the story of Le Chambon. From Waging Nonviolence, I'm your host, Brian Farrell, and this is City of Refuge. After the war, the Trochmes and Taces finally had time to think about the future and their plans for it. One of their top goals was to more firmly establish the Sevenol School as an international center of peace. During the war, it had served the important role of providing education, as well as cover, for the many refugee children hiding on the plateau. In fact, by 1944, as many as 350 students were attending. The only problem was that the school didn't have a building of its own. Classes were scattered around the village wherever space could be found. So, in the fall of 1945, André Trochme and Edouard Tace decided to raise money for a building. To do that, however, they had to go to where the money was. America, the land of miracles from which we have been separated by six years of war and poverty. America, which has marched forward with giant steps while we in France have slid backwards. As they traveled the country, speaking at churches and universities, they began to tell people their incredible story for the first time. This included their own loved ones. And so we came to Swarthmore, where my mother was in college at the time. That's Mark Whitaker talking about his grandfather, Edouard Tace. So he told the story of what had happened in Le Chambon and so forth. And this is the first time my mother had heard all the details. And she looked around and she saw all these people with tears in their eyes. And it was really at that point, sort of surrounded by all these Americans who she had spent the war with, that she really learned for the first time what a hero he had been. As Edward and Andre had hoped, these awestruck Americans were eager to help the pastors carry their vision for the Seminole School forward. Students in particular volunteered their services. So many young people dream of coming to help us create something new and beautiful. Give me something useful to do, they sigh. Let me be a part of something bigger than myself. Meanwhile, funders and fundraisers also presented themselves. Many were Protestants connected to the various denominations that had helped fund rescue work during the war, like the Quakers, Presbyterians, and Unitarians. By the time Andre and Edward had returned to the plateau, they were feeling, for the first time in a long time, energized about the future. Right now, I, Andre Trochme, am a happy man. I am dreaming of the Sevenole School, which will be nestled at the foot of a mountain. I am happy because I am watching that dream become a reality. 
By the summer of 1946, enough money had been raised to start building the school, and over the next few years, many young people from the United States and Europe came to the plateau to help with construction. We had a great time. It was like a Peace Corps. That's Nellie Hewitt, Andre and Magda's daughter, who spent one summer as a volunteer. It was actually after she had moved to the United States to learn English and eventually go to college. I left in 47. I was so overwhelmed and saturated with all these things that I wanted to get away. Discover the world, just like my parents came to New York to discover the world and get away. Surprisingly, her parents were being pushed in that direction as well. Despite their interest in the Sevenal School, not to mention all they had done during the war, the Protestant church in France was once again giving Andre a hard time. Ministers last only that long in a church. You are never a minister for 50 years in a church. You get tired of each other and so forth and so on. Specifically, the church hierarchy in France was tired of André splitting his time with the International Fellowship of Reconciliation, or I-4 as it's known. So his tenure as pastor in Le Chambon basically came to an end, allowing him to work full-time at I-4, where he could be fully committed to peace and reconciliation. In fact, both he and Magda were named European co-secretaries of the organization, and they were given a very specific task. The idea was to create a center where groups of people from different backgrounds, different nationalities, different philosophies could have exchanges with each other and learn to understand each other and to reconcile with other people who were different from themselves. This center needed to be somewhere easily accessible to travelers from around Europe. So that meant the Trocmes had to leave Le Chambon. And finally, in 1950, they left for good and settled in Versailles. It had been 16 years since their arrival on the plateau, and as much as it was the end of an era, Le Chambon still had Edouard Thies, who stayed on as the director of the school, which was by this point called Collège Sevenol. He actually remained in the position until retiring in 1964, and the school itself continued on for decades until just a few years ago. Nevertheless, this meant the Trocmes never fully disconnected from Le Chambon. They simply just moved on to the next project. They jumped from one fire to the other because my father was so creative and my mother too. In addition to running this center outside of Paris, which they called the House of Reconciliation, they continued to travel around the world. Taking turns, a year dad, a year mother, a year dad, a year mother. These trips were an opportunity to meet other activists and peace advocates, as well as share their ideas of nonviolence and reconciliation, which invariably meant sharing the story of Le Chambon. Interestingly, one of Magda's first trips was to India, the place where she and Andre had dreamed of going as newlyweds, to study nonviolence under Gandhi and observe the struggle for independence. Now, some 20 years later, she was arriving just in time to see the fruition of that struggle. Here I am, in the capital of Hindustan, in the palace of the parliament, where they are about to vote on the constitution of India. Unfortunately, however, she was not in time to meet Gandhi. He had been assassinated the year before, and what she was witnessing was the kind of ugly chaos that often follows victory. A kind of ugly chaos not unlike the plateau at the end of the war, when anger ran rampant and once popular figures like Andrei Trokme became unpopular. We cannot let ourselves become discouraged simply because Gandhi did not possess every imaginable quality, that he didn't always grasp social problems, or because, in spite of abolishing the caste system, he sometimes didn't take the side of the people against capitalism. 
If Gandhi had been a saint, a god, none or very few of us would have been able to follow him. But Gandhi set the best example possible. He pushed his faithfulness to an idea, a vocation, that of nonviolence to its furthest possible limit. He died for this idea. It is up to someone else to step forward and continue this work. A few years later, in 1956, Magda met someone who was doing just that. Only it wasn't in India, but rather the United States. The evening I spent in Montgomery with Martin Luther King taught me a great deal. This was in the midst of the historic bus boycott, and she witnessed something rather amusing, at least in terms of how we view King today. Martin Luther King, a man the American public and even his enemies have considered the greatest religious teacher of our day, paused a number of times during his speech that evening. Why? To turn on the television set so he wouldn't miss the last baseball game of the series. For Magda, though, this kind of lighthearted moment was a reminder that amidst the deadly serious work of organizing, people still need to find time for enjoyment. This is what a modern saint looks like especially those who are from the new world, who are preparing for a new world and who take time to enjoy the pleasures and distractions of the world in which we live. During her time in the American South, Magda also spoke before a black church in Tallahassee, something that was considered quite dangerous at the time, especially given that the local newspaper wrote a story with the sinister headline, quote, white woman will speak to blacks. It was one of the best experiences of my life. The church was full. I spoke as though I was being carried by the crowd. And what did she speak about? Le Chambon, of course. And this audience had no trouble relating to what the plateau experienced under Nazism. At that very moment, the White Citizens Council was trying to find a way to exempt Florida from federal anti-segregation laws. France in 1942, USA in 1957. Humanity is the same everywhere. Not surprisingly, Magda had many issues with what she saw in the United States. Here was a flagrant contradiction in America. On the one hand, churches filled to capacity on Sunday mornings, and on the other, a horrific stock of A-bombs and H-bombs piling up, rampant financial imperialism and consumerism and racial segregation. Magda's brilliance really shines through in her writings from this time period. She and Andre were such an incredible force for peace during the post-war years. They seemed to have their finger on the pulse of nearly every major world issue. For example, they were among the first to protest the dangers of nuclear power, getting arrested in 1958 as part of a sit-in demonstration at a power plant in southern France. That same year, Andre traveled to Japan to take part in a conference opposing the development of nuclear weapons. After seeing the destruction of Nagasaki and Hiroshima a decade later, he didn't mince words in equating it with the worst of what the Nazis had done. And to the right and to the left of the noisy bomb, I saw its hollow-eyed twins, the silent suffocation of concentration camps and the murder of human beings perpetrated by torture. Andre also twice traveled to Vietnam with peace delegations, first in 1955, right after the French surrendered, and again in 1965 in the midst of the U.S. war. Both times his aim was to urge Ho Chi Minh to enter peace negotiations with the South Vietnamese. Obviously, the communist leader wasn't swayed to change course, as fighting continued for another 10 years. But Andre was certainly used to the difficulties of persuading guerrilla armies to put down their weapons. 
Interestingly, he and Magda found a new approach to that problem in Algeria, which was not only at war with France for its independence, but also at war internally between Christians and Muslims. When the Algerian war began, things became even more delicate. I was nonviolent. I could not approve of the terrorist acts conducted by the nationalist Algerians, nor the repressive actions of the police and then the army ordered by France. This time, instead of only advocating for a peace agreement, André and Magda focused on easing tensions through programs aimed at increasing literacy and employment. During the war with France, André moved into a slum in the city now known as Skikta and began offering free classes. Magda spent her time meeting with women and children. Revolutions make for unexpected encounters between groups of people who, up until then, have seemed to be irredeemably separated by political, religious, and social barriers. Algerians and Europeans, Muslims and Christians, stood side by side as they opened a school for mechanics. In total, André and Magda traveled to some 16 or more countries, many of them twice during the 1950s, their most active post-war period. Although the traveling and the speaking continued after they left the International Fellowship of Reconciliation in 1959, their final years together were much less of a whirlwind. They moved to Geneva, Switzerland, where Magda taught Italian at the university, and André once again became the pastor of a church. This gave them some much-needed stability and savings, as years of selfless activism had left them nearly broke. Shortly after his retirement in 1970, André found out that he was going to receive a Righteous Among the Nations medal for his rescue work during World War II. The award, which is issued by the Yad Vashem Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem, came as a shock to André. He didn't like medals or being singled out and praised for his work. For one thing, he saw what happened on the plateau as a collective effort. Since I am opposed to decorations, I would have to refuse such a decoration. Why me? Why not the throngs of humble peasants of the plateau who did as much and more than me? Why not my wife, whose conduct was much more heroic than mine? Why not my colleague, Edouard Tace, whom I shared everything and all the responsibilities? So he proposed an alternative, requesting that the award instead be given to the people of Le Chambon and the surrounding villages of the plateau. Yad Vashem agreed, making it the first time a place, rather than a person, received the award. Since then, only one other place has been honored by the memorial, a village in the Netherlands, and that's among over 26,000 awardees and counting. Sadly, André was unable to attend the ceremony, which he also requested take place in Le Chambon, rather than the Israeli embassy. He was in a hospital in Geneva where he would die five days later, just weeks after his 70th birthday. It was a series of medical errors, and, and he, his general condition was not very good. But he died of an embolism after surgery. That's Nellie, who was at his bedside just moments before he passed. Magda, naturally, was devastated. She was absolutely desperate. She said, I lost my husband, the father of my children, and my best friend. They were a tremendous duo who had been through so much and were hoping to finally have some quiet time together retiring maybe in Florence, which would allow André to immerse himself in fine arts, one of his numerous interests. They formed a very good team that way. She, she was the one who did the footwork. He, he did the conception and the dream work. And they needed each other because they completed each other that yeah. way. They were like two peas in a pod. 
Andre, of course, knew this as well. My temperament makes me philosophize endlessly about life, death, people, and things, and I tend to generalize and analyze everything. Fortunately, I married a woman who is firmly rooted in the present, in life, and the lives of others, and she draws me out of my meditations, which can become stagnant and selfish. Yad Vashem still gave Andre an individual award, which Magda received at his funeral in the church where he preached in Le Chambon. She, Edouard Tace, Danielle Trochme, and other major rescuers would have to wait over a decade to receive their own individual awards from Yad Vashem. That's because the story and its central figures just weren't that well known yet. Perhaps the most detailed written account at that point was a short chapter in a 1969 book titled Anthology of Holocaust Literature. Its author was a former aid worker in the French internment camps, so he had first-hand knowledge of the rescue. But even his version of the story was very short on details and names. For some inexplicable reason, Andre is referred to as Pastor M. Nevertheless, this book found its way to Philip Halley. Remember him? He's the guy from the very beginning of the series, in part one, who was in the depths of despair until he discovered the story of Le Chambon while flipping through what turned out to be the anthology I just mentioned. And I started reading, and uh, my cheeks started itching. I reached up, and my cheeks were covered with tears, and I was reading about a little village of Le Chambon. This was a man whose entire life, to this point, had been one long lesson in cruelty. Growing up in Chicago, he fought with kids who hated him for being Jewish. During World War II, he helped level German cities, watching young men die at his feet. Then he came home and began his career as a scholar, studying the absolute worst things humans have done to one another. Over time, that led him to a rather cynical worldview. But then he found the story of Le Chambon. I realized that this might be my salvation, that I could, by becoming interested in it, uh, assimilate it, imitate it, mimic it, and maybe be saved. So he went back to France, found the village, tracked down whoever he could find, Magda, Edouard, anyone else still alive who had taken part in the rescue. Over the next few years, he wrote Lest Innocent Blood Be Shed, the first book on Le Chambon, and when it came out in 1979, it received serious attention, with reviews in the New York Times and elsewhere. I, I really think that Howie's book was a landmark book. That's Patrick Henry, who wrote his book about Le Chambon, We Only Know Men, over 25 years later. It was one of the first books about the rescuers. It's one of the reasons why the rescuers play such a big role in Holocaust museums throughout the world. Interestingly, it did more than just spread awareness to the wider public. It also managed to inform people closely connected to the story. But it really wasn't until Halley's book came out that even I knew the full extent of it. That's Mark Whitaker, Edward Tace's grandson. It wasn't really in the yeah. nature of my grandparents or even their children to go around bragging. At the same time, the book found its way to some of the Jewish refugees who had been taken in by Le Chambon. And when I saw the book advertised in the book review with a picture, I said, I know these people. That's Hannah Liebman describing the New York Times review she and her husband Max came across. And so, of course, we bought the book, and then I read it. Then I wrote a letter to Professor Halley, and he used it in many occasions in his lectures he gave or speeches he gave. He then wanted us to come along with him repeatedly when he Which spoke. 
Peter Feigl had a similar experience. I was flipping through the pages of the Washington Post, uh, and I mean flipping through them. And I had turned the page, and suddenly I realized, wait a minute, I just saw something chambon. It was another book review, so, of course, he went out and immediately bought a copy. I began to read it, and that helped a great deal in in bringing back uh, all the events and uh, my, my participation in them. Yet, for all the good that Halley's book did, it also created some serious problems. For one thing, it's clear now that Halley did not get the story fully right. In interviews just a few years after his book came out, Magda Trokme said that Halley had exaggerated a number of things. And today, Magda's daughter Nellie still feels much the same way. He discovered the story, but he imagined many situations. He even recreated conversations. The bigger problem for the Trokmes, though, was that Halley had been infatuated with them, to the point of perhaps featuring them too prominently. Because when the book came out in French, people started getting angry because they somehow thought that the Trokme family talked to this man, Philip Halley, and kind of exaggerated the role that their family played and made it look like they were the real key players. Examining this controversy today, I have to say it seems a bit silly. For starters, anyone who knew the Trokmes surely should have known better than to think they were the kind of people to self-aggrandize. What's more, Halley is pretty upfront throughout the book about his adoration of the Trokmes, as well as the changes he was undergoing as a person by learning from them. In short, it should be clear to any reader that Halley's book is not the work of a dutiful historian, but rather a passionate philosopher. Nevertheless, it's understandable that people wanted a more complete version of the story to be told. And it only helped matters that more people, like the rescuers and survivors Halley left out, were ready to speak about their memories of the war. The first person to take on this challenge was a filmmaker named Pierre Sauvage. His documentary, called Weapons of the Spirit, was released in 1989, a decade after Halley's book came out. Pierre Sauvage says a very straight story. He did good research, and it is still the documentary on the story. Like Halley, Sauvage had a compelling reason for wanting to tell the story of Le Chambon. That's where I had the good, good fortune to be born. This is Pierre speaking to me on the phone from his home in Los Angeles. My parents met in Paris, and when France fell in 1940, they went south. Both of them were Jewish, his mother having fled from Poland and his father from Germany. They first went to Marseille, where they sought help from the Varian Fry Committee. I actually mentioned Varian Fry in part four. He was an American journalist who ran another incredible rescue operation in southern France at the same time. But they actually were rejected, and my mother became pregnant, and the big question was, uh, where should uh, they go? A friend told them about the plateau, saying that the people there were descended from the Huguenots and that they might therefore be sympathetic to their plight. You know, you talk to survivors, and they'll always say, well, you know, we were just lucky. Uh, And I understand the emotional need to do that. But I'm convinced that the reality is that sometimes uh, there were smarts involved as well. And it was simply, if you knew anything about Huguenot history, that was a logical door to knock on, a Huguenot door. So Pierre's parents soon settled in Le Chambon, which was not only the perfect place to hide, but also the perfect place to deliver their child. It turned out to be a problem pregnancy, so this really complicated things. 
Le Chambon, as it happened, had a very skilled doctor named Roger Leforestier. He was committed to the rescue effort, and he had extraordinary uh, medical skills. He was the man I spoke about last episode, who was arrested by the Germans and later killed, but not before he played a role protecting Le Chambon from Nazi reprisals. I am convinced that I was watched over uh, and brought into the world more carefully than I might have been at any modern medical facility. Amazingly, though, Pierre knew none of this until he was an adult. My parents chose, after the war, to put all this behind them. And not only was I not raised with stories about Le Chambon, but my parents even hid from me the fact that I was Jewish. The only reason they told him was because he was going to Paris, where he would be staying with some family. But I think my parents knew that the secret would no longer be kept, so they chose to tell me, which was a smart move. Even after finding out, though, Pierre was not particularly interested or all that shocked. Basically, what my, my parents did is tell me the fact, but they also told me it was not important. And for many years, I accepted the fact that it was not important. That changed, however, as he grew older and met his wife, who also happened to be Jewish. Eventually, they took a trip together to Le Chambon in the early 1980s. And I met other people there, and I realized what an important story this was. He knew about Halley's book at this point, but immediately saw there was more to the story yet to be told. I realized I really wanted to, to, to capture these people. I wanted to uh, show their faces. I wanted to, uh, to provide their testimony. Before long, he was interviewing many of the core figures of the rescue effort, including Magda Trocme and Edouard Tace. Oh, ben C'est Jésus qui l'a fait en disant, « Tu aimeras le Seigneur ton Dieu de tout ton cœur, tout ton âme, toute ta pensée. » That's Edward speaking in perhaps the only recording that exists of him. Sitting in front of pictures of Gandhi and MLK, he explained that Christianity, to him, boiled down to one thing, loving God and your neighbor as you love yourself. Sadly, Edward passed away not long after this interview. He was 85 years old, but according to his daughter Jean, he would have appreciated the film. The film plays tribute also to other people in the town, not just the two pastors. He thought that was very important because it was the whole town. Now, what the Tokmiz did, which was extraordinarily important, is help steer the community. But it's not as if they created this momentum. The momentum derived from something much, much deeper than that. It really was, as, as Magda puts it in my film, it was a, it was a consensus and it was a consensus that had, that had deep roots. As a result, Pierre spoke to a number of people who had not crossed Halley's radar. Rescuers like Madeleine Dreyfus, who saved at least 100 children during the war. At the same time, he also confronted one of the plateau's first real opponents. I got the testimony of the Vichy official who actually went to Le Chambon during the war. Georges Lamirand. Remember him? He was the Vichy minister of youth who came to Le Chambon expecting a grand reception, but was confronted with the fact that the village was hiding Jews. And I, I came to realize um, that, uh, you know, one of the reasons that he agreed is he had nothing on his conscience. He was convinced that he hadn't, he hadn't done anything actively wrong. Looking somewhat annoyed at Pierre, he actually tries to explain that he never denounced Jews and wasn't involved in the roundups. He even goes so far as to say, I have many friends who are Jewish. And while that may have been true, he was undoubtedly a classic example of the banality of evil. 
And one thing I certainly lacked was a villain. And, you know, the reality is that if I'd been able to dig up Hitler living to a ripe old age in some place in Argentina, I would have been thrilled to have the scoop. But he really would not have been the right villain for me because the, the right villain for me was the villain of omission, not the villain of commission. This was a story about people who couldn't look the other way. Far more uplifting than that, though, was Pierre's inclusion of refugees who had been helped by the plateau. People like Peter Feigl, who in this clip is shown returning to Le Chambon for the first time since he was a teenager. It evokes a feeling of, of gratitude, a gratitude that I can appreciate today and I, I wasn't even aware of when I was 14. Even more amazing than that return scene, however, was something that happened to Peter after the film was released. I received a letter from a, a man in Paris asking me whether I was a Pierre Feigl who wrote a diary dedicated to his parents. If you'll recall, Peter had been writing in a diary up until Danielle Trochme took it away from him for safety reasons. I, I pretty much had forgotten that I had written this. I, I occasionally said, you know, I could have sworn that I had a diary that I wrote originally, but... Um, Did I really write it, or is this a figment of my imagination? The man who contacted him about it said he had found it in a flea market after the war. He said, I am a collector of such memorabilia, and uh, by the way, I published a diary in France in 1976, because I had assumed that you, you, you perished. But rather than return the diary out of kindness, the man made Peter buy it back. He has since donated the diary to the U.S. Holocaust Museum, which regards it as an important primary source account of a Jewish child's life in France during the war. But that's just one example of the film's impact. It also helped other former refugees reconnect with their past. Uh, And I had never really spoken to my husband about the full extent of my experiences. That's Renee Kahn-Silver, who was just a young child during World War II and the experience had been so traumatic that she put most of it out of her mind. Until one day in 1989, when she came across an article in the New York Times about weapons of the spirit. So I said to my husband, you know, there is a film being made about a town where I think I might have spent some time. So they went to see it together, and at one point in the film... Pierre Sauvage speaks to a Madame Dreyfus whom I definitely did not recognize, because this is, you know, 40 years later. And uh, he said to her, I understand you kept a little notebook. This was so Madeline could keep track of where all the children were hidden, something she admitted to Pierre was quite risky. Anyway, she opens this notebook on the screen, and I saw my sister's name, and my name, and our address, and my sister's date of birth, and... And it goes on, and she turns pages, and my name appears again. And I let out a scream I have never in my life screamed like that. It was an incredible turning point for Renee. That's when I first reconnected. And it's the first time that I realized that, you know, I had not been part of something shameful, but a part of something extraordinarily beautiful and worthy. While Weapons of the Spirit won many awards, including one shared with Ken Burns, stories like Renee's are what Pierre considers his greatest honor. Nothing moves me more and pleases me more than when another survivor of the Chambon comes out of the woodwork. Uh, I, I can't tell you how gratifying that is. And in 1992, not long after the film was released, 
there was a large gathering in Le Chambon, which is now referred to as the Colloquium. It was a gathering of the survivors and, of course, uh, the people of Le Chambon and members of the Resistance, uh, who had all been very active uh, in that area. At one point, everyone got together and sang the French version of Auld Lang Syne. It, it was an extraordinary experience. It was very, very, very moving. The colloquium also yielded an important resource, a 700-page volume containing the entire proceedings of the three-day gathering, where many people involved in the rescue operation spoke for the first time. All the people who thought they had been forgotten by Harry came out. That's Nellie again. They needed that to show that they had done something too. And they were right, because Harry made it sound as if there was only Le Chambon and Trocmé. It revealed many, many, many people did, did a lot, a lot of things. In fact, André was barely even mentioned at the colloquium, despite his role as a charismatic catalyst, organizer, and orator. He was, like, forgotten. It may seem strange to leave out someone who is so central to the story, but, as Nellie said, They had to discover the other parts of the story. And while that was happening, Magda Trochme was spending her final years arranging André's memoirs and writing her own. When she passed away in 1996, at age 95, her papers, when combined with Andre's, totaled around a thousand typed pages. And together with the colloquium, they offer researchers and historians about as complete a story as there can be of an unplanned, largely clandestine resistance and rescue operation. Without so paper trail, stories get lost. And so I think the Chambon is documented now. There's probably been a dozen or so books written about it in the last 20 years, and I've relied on a good number of them to make this podcast. If you check out the show notes on Waging Nonviolence, you'll see the long list for each episode. But as we wrap this one up, I'd like to come back to Philip Halley, the man who put the story of Le Chambon on the map. Knowing how much it changed his life on a deeply personal level, I couldn't help but wonder what he thought about everything that happened after his book came out. And it turns out the criticisms, the fact that the Trochmes weren't entirely pleased and other people felt left out, they weren't really on his mind. Instead, Halley found himself grappling with something much bigger. I said to myself, wait a minute, wait a minute. Something in your heart resents the village. Something in your heart resents the village. They didn't stop Hitler. They did nothing to stop Hitler. That's Halley talking about what happened after his book came out, after he thought he had undergone a conversion. A thousand de Chambons would not have stopped Hitler. It took decent murderers like me to do it. Murderers who had compunctions, but who murdered nonetheless to stop him. So... That conversion he had experienced, it seems it didn't stick. Halley's old demons, his thoughts on cruelty and human nature, had returned, and they were threatening to tarnish everything he had come to learn and love about the story of Le Chambon. But how he grappled with these doubts, ones that maybe you yourself have had as you've listened to this series, it tells us a lot about what the story of Le Chambon really means. So join me next week for our final episode as we explore the greater lessons of Le Chambon and its relevance to the world today. 
on the next episode. The issue of whether a community, city, an area, state should be a place of sanctuary, that's a, that's a political decision. But once that political decision has been made, then the question is, well, what is there to be learned? Are there other examples? And Le Chambon really is a singular example of a whole community that turned itself into a, a, a place of sanctuary. City of Refuge was written, edited, and produced by me, Brian Farrell. Magda and Andre Chokme are performed by Ava Eisenson and Brian McCarthy. Our theme music and other original songs are by Will Travers. We also heard music by Audionautics and Chris Zabriskie. This episode was mixed by David Tattashore. Special thanks to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum for the interviews of Hannah and Max Liebman that were used in this episode. Conspiracy of Goodness exhibit at the Kupferberg Holocaust Center in Queens is no longer running, unfortunately, but you can still get a glimpse of it on their website as well as the other work they are currently doing. Visit khc.qcc.cuny.edu. Another special thanks to Pierre Sauvage for the clips from his great film, Weapons of the Spirit. Pierre is working on a 30th anniversary edition that you can learn more about at his website, Chambon.org. For more information, please go to our website, wagingnonviolence.org. There, you'll find a transcript, photos, a list of our sources, music used, and much more. <laughs>